Welcome to the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. In this season, we're going to explore how we can become better as a species at facing challenges and solving problems, especially during unpredictable situations. We're going to do that by exploring the machinery of our body and the biomechanics of resilience, adaptability, and social intelligence. We'll look at our power to control and modify how we use our hands, voices, bodies, breath, and the intelligent systems of our cells, bones, and muscles to unlock our potential as a cooperative and brilliant species. Thanks for joining. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 3, and my interview with expert rock climber Alma Esteban. Before we get into the interview, I want to give you an overview of an emerging field of neuroscience, and one that actually ties into the interview on partner-based rock climbing that I had with Alma. And this is a field of neuroscience that I think is critically important for our understanding of human behavior. And it is one that combines attachment theory, neurophysiology, and looking at how animals, particularly mammals, and then later humans, have evolved over time in terms of their ability to problem solve and regulate their nervous systems based on their social existence. And this field is called affiliative neuroscience. So one of the main experts of this field is Dr. Ruth Feldman, who's been doing research for a very long time on attachment and neuroscience. And she has a term called biobehavioral synchrony, which is an understanding of how we coordinate our behavior and synchronize and complement each other's frequencies and patterns as a way to regulate our nervous systems on a neurochemical level, as well as a motor level, and how this assists us in becoming more adaptive and able to solve problems more efficiently and optimize ourselves really as organisms. So the field of affiliative neuroscience and the truly social aspect of us as humans and mammals and the partnerships and trust that we create with others is what comes out of my conversation with Alma and what I cover in the next section of the podcast. So thank you for joining me.
So what I think is really important for us to understand, first of all, about other kinds of neuroscience research is that a lot of times when we're studying the brain, we have been relying on things like MRI scans, which is where people are lying immobile and isolated in a chamber, which is not necessarily reflective of the brain-body system, and very specifically the affiliative sociality, the social aspects of our brain. And so affiliative neuroscience brings in the oxytocin system, the affiliative brain, and this concept of biobehavioral synchrony, where we coordinate our behaviors and our movements and Empathy and attunement and perspective taking are all aspects of how we regulate ourselves on neurochemical levels and also what we're seeing from neuroscience research that is more social based is that our brainwaves actually start to synchronize as well and different regions will mirror each other or complement each other in some way. And that's generally done through hyperscanning, which is putting... EEG caps and measuring EEG on more than one person, generally dyads, or this is also called two-person neuroscience, which really is an emerging field. That is not the basis of much of our neuroscience research thus far. It has been very much based on an individual alone and not moving inside of a machine. So I think this is really important. A very big part of affiliative neuroscience is about resilience. And I think it's helpful to hear some of, for example, Dr. Ruth Feldman's, what she brings into the term resilience, because there is such a highly social aspect of it as well. So just some things about it. There's three pillars that she lists, which are plasticity, the fact that our brain is dependent on our early experiences and also is plastic and malleable throughout life. Sociality, so the fact that we use empathy and perspective taking and these kinds of behavioral synchronies in order to add to our endurance and adaptation. And then also meaning, so the meaning that we make of our experiences, our challenges, adversities, and relationships and all the different things that are happening in our environments. So with all of that, with those three pillars, what does that give us? What is resilience? So with her research, she includes some of these concepts. When a person is resilient, they're able to face life's hardships with courage and perseverance. They can maintain a positive outlook under difficult circumstances, enjoy intimate bonds and a wider social circle express empathy and compassion to others' misfortune, as well as cultivate a sense of agency and industry towards long-term autonomous goals, have a life of creativity and vitality and meaning, and are free of debilitating symptoms, even if they have experienced adversity or current trauma. So this would be, in a sense, what we would achieve through this idea of resilience. So 
So I think it's really important for us to think about those, all those aspects of resilience as what we are really striving towards, that it's not just about cold water baths and being, being able to get through that or being able to succeed on an exam or do well in your career. There are a lot of components of that idea of agency and being able to have intimacy and wider social circles, compassion and understanding of others, etc. The other part that I think is really important for us to think about with this idea of affiliative neuroscience is that we are bonding creatures. Bonding is extremely important for us. And if we don't start to understand this, I think we're going to continue to see really big challenges in our world. And one of those reasons is that because the oxytocin system, this bonding system is a part of us, it's a part of our DNA as mammals. If we aren't getting it in our life, we are going to seek it out somehow. And I think that online bonding and online affiliation is not a good stand-in. And if people are not getting it in their real in-person interactions, they're going to seek it out generally online because that is where the other social aspects are going to come from. But the problem with online affiliations is that it lacks something that's very important that comes up in affiliative neuroscience, which is joint attention and joint problem solving. So when you're online with another person, you are not actually joining your attention on the same physical object. And that is a part of what synchronizes human brains. That's what synchronizes that kind of the brainwave activity is joint attention on a common object or common goal. So that's already not happening online because if I look at my screen and you look on your screen, we're not looking at the actual same object. So that's just something to think about. We're also missing massive amounts of multi-sensory based frequencies that we absolutely have to have to accurately assess another person's intention and internal states. So if we're not getting that, we may get a false sense of belonging and acceptance based on an inaccurate mental model that gets created in the brain. And that mental model is going to get created more through just associations and filling in the gaps rather than actual information. So people are going to end up trusting and modeling themselves after people online using mental models that are absolutely incomplete. They're inaccurate. They're incomplete. They're missing extremely important information for our brains because what we do when we learn and when we model is it's a sensory motor simulation in the brain. And so all the senses need to get involved in that. Texture, pressure, touch, warmth, sight, sound, smell, etc. And then the motor component. So there are going to be a lot of things that go wrong because people are filling in the gaps too much with a very small amount of data that's coming in from online affiliations and connections. So this concept of, affili of affiliative neuroscience is very important. There are two streams that come out of when we look at the evolution of sociality in humans or sociality in humans, which is that a lot of what we are doing when we are social is we are solving problems in more efficient ways. 
And we're also regulating our nervous systems through attunement, present moment attunement and empathic dialogue and empathic attunement. So that's why I'm bringing in the guests that I am this season is to look at how we use our bodies and hands and sensory motor systems using many different kinds of senses in live time with other humans. I think there's something very important about it for us to understand and to foster and cultivate as well. And so today's interview is with Alma Esteban, and she is the program manager of a program called Mountains Beyond Borders. She currently now lives in France. She was born in Mexico and has done a lot of traveling in between. What I found really intriguing about the whole concept of rock climbing and what Alma does, particularly partner-based rock climbing, is how much it ties into what we see from the research on affiliative neuroscience and these ideas of joint problem solving, this biobehavioral and motor kind of synchrony that happens with humans as they trust each other and feel supported, as well as the empathic perspective taking. These are all components that are important in rock climbing with a partner. So those are some concepts that emerge during our conversation. And I'll just highlight three particular themes that came out from our conversation. One is present moment attunement. So what's key for an individual in each moment during climbing is to be very presently attuned to their own sensations, to their own body, what's happening in their surroundings, what their senses are picking up, their internal environment. And that it's important for a person to know how to self-regulate while they're climbing because another person is not going to be able to do that for them. They can't breathe for them. They can't see exactly what they're seeing in that moment. So there's a a big component of self-regulation that's required while climbing. But the other fascinating component of this is that there's other attunement. There's present moment attunement to the other as well. That's extremely important in climbing. It's not always verbal. There are a lot of nonverbal signals that are being transmitted in a sense from one to the other. That can be things like listening for the other's breath or the tension on the cord or different, and there can be different kinds of um, verbal signals as well. But this kind of other attunement, a present moment attunement to the other person's signals of distress or needing to rest and things like that, those are all coming out and extremely important during the climb. And I think this is just a beautiful parallel for our social lives, which is that we do need to figure out how to tune into ourselves, to monitor ourselves, understand our own patterns in order for us to anchor ourselves in each moment. And we are also inextricably linked to the people in our lives, especially the people who are we have close relationships with. And so it's important for us to attune to our own distresses and needs, and also attune to other people's signals of distress and needs and desires and things like that. So I thought that was um, just a really powerful parallel that I saw between rock climbing and our 
sociality, our affiliation needs as well. So I, so that's one of the parallels that I saw between what's important in climbing partners and what's important in our partnerships in life as well. Another aspect is to meet a partner where they're at. So they may not be as verbal as we, so a partner might not be as verbal as the other partner. And so there's a tuning in as well to understanding that we all have different ways of expressing what's happening with us. Some people will be extremely verbal and share a lot. Some people don't. And so it's up to each person that we're interacting with in life. And this is going for the climbing partners. And this is inspired by the climbing partner conversation to understand that we have different languages in a sense, different dialects of what we express. And that sometimes someone taking space, for example, is their way of saying they need space and they may not be able to declare it in a certain way. So whereas another person may need proximity at a certain moment and they have another way to express that. So it's just helpful for us to keep in mind that we all have different ways of doing it and we're not all verbal. We don't all express in the same way. So being able to just tune into the fact that we have those differences, I think, is really powerful. Another element that came up in our conversation that also goes into affiliative neuroscience, where we talk about joint problem solving, is that there's a common goal for the climbing partners. They Both partners want the other to succeed, and they are doing this together as a team, and so one person's success relies on the other person's success as well. But what Alma highlighted in this conversation, and I think is also really special for our own lives, is that success doesn't necessarily come only from a specific goal of reaching that peak or doing a very particular kind of route. It also comes from solving a problem we've never solved before or pushing through fear of uncertainty working through a challenging situation, not giving up. Those are measurements of success. And if the partners in this climb only make it be about that concrete thing of getting to that very specific peak, for example, then they actually can put each other in, har- in harm's way because they may, if they fixate on that goal and they don't continue to acknowledge the goal of trust and attunement and presence and that there are other aspects of success, which is to face this uncertainty and solve problems, then if they don't tune into those levels and those elements of success, then they may ignore one person's signals of distress or need to rest. They may ignore those kinds of signals that are happening in order to just achieve that peak. So I thought that was also a cool parallel for us to think about that we may have a specific goal, and that's important for us to have. It helps us kind of create the, the template of what we're going towards. But if we fixate on that to the detriment of the other really powerful aspects of resilience, which is the ability to have compassion and empathic perspective taking, the ability to self-regulate and also be able to regulate in the presence of another, etc., those are, are all parts of resilience that I think are important for us to strive, th- strive for. So I think it's helpful for us to think about when we're setting goals that 
Yes, it can be about something concrete, but the most important part of resilience is actually what we get as we go through the ups and downs in each present moment situation that arises and how we navigate that. And thinking about the people in our lives and how we affect them is a part of that process. So what I love about the conversation that Alma highlighted as well is that there's no, you can't really compete. You can't outdo the other in this climb. When you're trying to get to that new peak, you're trying to ascend to a higher level you've never been to before. You need to be able to trust the other person and know that they have your best interests at heart. And that correlates with the hyperscanning and the two-person neuroscience when we see joint problem solving and these kinds of synchronization of behaviors. We see that happen the most effectively and efficiently and accurately in long-term couples. And they also report a sense of trust and support that happens during this problem solving. So there's something about having a level of trust with another that allows for better kinds of problem solving as well. And then one last theme that came out as well was the concept of flow and tuning into, in a sense, a higher level of intelligence. So as a climber, such as Alma, gets into a really tricky situation, a challenge, where there's really just a necessity for her to figure out. She can't go back down at that point. She kind of has to keep going. There's a level of focus that starts to happen. And she describes this as almost out-of-body type of feeling that she's not in her normal mind. There's this just wider, expansive kind of view that's happening. And I've also experienced that in my own life as well. What I think is so fascinating about that is there, there is a level of intelligence that exists within the cells of our body that we cannot possibly consciously understand. They are all of the information that is getting inputted into these cells is coming is coming into our body. It's getting registered. It's just that only fractions of it actually reach that level where we get conscious access to it. So for example, when you cut your finger, you don't consciously know how the cells of your body are making calculations to figure out how to close that wound, but they figure it out. There's a level that we cannot possibly consciously comprehend. And yet our body has that kind of intelligence within it. There's also a reliance on the physical laws of nature, of gravity, inertia, momentum, etc., that our body understands on a very deep, deep, deep level. That when we get into different situations, there's, there's that kind of reliance on the laws that are happening around, the universal laws of cause, effect, etc., that are occurring at every moment that I think are, are happening on a very deep unconscious level as well. And when sometimes when we're able to let go of our very processing, analytical, logical, verbal mind, we sometimes can get into a space where we trust that a bit more. We trust our body. We trust it to know what to do 
and what it's telling us. And that I think that takes practice and it takes us to build up a track record of trusting and seeing where it takes us in order to continue to build that trust with that kind of intelligence that is a little bit less really hyper-focused and verbal and more present moment expansive and what you would call flow, I think, in many ways. So those are some of the themes of what came up during this conversation. There's this level of attunement to ourselves and others, an acknowledgement of a common goal or purpose, and understanding that a goal includes all of the stuff that goes with it along the way, and that we can't lose sight of those things, such as building up trust and within ourselves and building trust with others, for example, to help us get to those goals. And then this level of trusting the higher intelligence of our body and our brain in many ways to calculate things that we may not necessarily understand how it's doing it, but to put some trust in that. So I hope you enjoy the conversation and notice these themes that come up. I appreciate you continuing to support my podcast. I think that there's mixed reviews about this season. And I see myself kind of like a comedian sometimes who is testing out jokes to see <laughs> to see which ones get get applause and laughter. And it's hit or miss. And I think that what I'm really trying to do is just tie a lot of different types of intelligence together, types of perspectives, types of lived experiences. So I appreciate your graciousness as I learn to, to do this and to try and integrate all these different threads of experiences together. So, um, so with that, I bring you my interview with Alma Esteban. Thank you. So first, I'm going to just introduce you to my audience. So this is Alma Esteban, and she's the project manager for Mountains Beyond Borders and an expert rock climber. And uh, she reached out to me a while ago about just this amazing project that she'll tell you about later that I got very excited about. And uh, we had some chats and back and forth, and I just... Uh, I find you very intriguing and I love everything that you're doing and how much you are learning about yourself along the way and teaching other people about learning about themselves through rock climbing and through these other projects. So I'd love for you to introduce yourself, where, where you're located, where you're from, a little bit about your journey and, and all that kind of stuff. Okay, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I feel really honored. I'm a huge fan of your work. And uh, yeah, I'm just super happy to be here. Um, so right now I'm in saint léger du Ventoux. It's a small village in southern France. There's just uh, seven inhabitants in saint léger Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's super tiny. It's, it's so small. And I'm actually not in the village itself. I'm in the valley. Uh, next to a river surrounded by mountains. It's a big rock climbing destination. And I'm, I live in a yurt just next to a river. I'm very happy here. It's very simple. You know, it's just like a, a small area. And I 
most of the things that I do are adapted to nature. I have to adapt to the heat, the cold all the time. I keep changing and I, I really like that. And I'm originally from Mexico. I like to travel and I like to change environments. And I've been changing very much my life path, I guess. I used to work for the Mexican government in international relations a long time ago. And also after that, I wanted to do smaller projects. So I started to focus more into local development projects. And by that time, I had already discovered rock climbing. And so I was really passionate about it from the beginning. And I wanted for it to take a bigger part in my life. So I started mixing those things. And and I started working for a project in central Mexico, developing a climbing community and trying to develop tourism to get more incomes for the locals and so I was doing that for a short time, and then I moved to France to do a master's degree in local development projects. And I was working for different NGOs uh, in international solidarity and then in environmental work. And then I moved uh, back to Mexico, and I was uh, more focused in rock climbing and doing the guidebook for an area. And uh, and then after that, well, I had a, a series of life events that were very challenging and very hard to live with. And I needed to just find myself again. So I moved to Canada and I wanted to do a, like a radical change just so I could get myself back in track. And that's when I discovered your podcast because I was, um, you know, in a path of uh, trying to get better and to learn other things. And I was just I, I don't even know how I found it. I was actually looking for podcasts and I jumped into yours. And I was traveling with a friend at, at the time. She's a doctor and we were both in the same situation, coincidentally. And so we were sharing everything that we were finding. And so we were listening to your podcast and then talking about <laughs> it together and going back and forth. And we're both huge fans of your work. Oh, so. amazing. What, so what was it about rock climbing that that really touched you? Was there some sort of shift in your mind that happened or what was it about rock climbing that was so inspiring? It's hard to put it into one word, but if, if, when I started climbing, I mean, I wanted, I started climbing before I actually started climbing, I guess. I was climbing in my mind because I was mm. watching in movies and in magazines and everywhere. And I, it wasn't accessible to me. I just uh, didn't know that existed. I, I thought uh, this is a thing for Americans in Mexico. <laughs> that's not a thing. <laughs> and then I discovered that my uncle was uh, a climber from uh, in the city. And I'm oh. like, whoa, that exists here. I want to go climbing with him. Oh. But, you know, a culture in Mexico is so different. So my mom always was protecting me and said, you cannot go. You're, she was associating it to the movies, you know, vertical limit and all these things. <laughs> but I would kill myself. And so it was extreme, extremely forbidden for me. So my uncle never took me climbing. I asked for my birthday many times and he didn't. I understand. And then when I was in university, I had more freedom. Um, and so I discovered that there was a, a gym in the city that had a rock climbing wall. It wasn't a rock climbing gym, it was just like, it, ha it was part of it. So I went to check it out. They, I remember they said like, yeah, your first time is free. So I went and tried it and I loved it from the first time. I just remember that I could just go and 
I could try to push myself and I was just possessed. I wasn't thinking, I just wanted to try and my goal was to get to the top and I could feel that my arms started to get very tired, you know, and mm. like I couldn't grip anymore. And I fell and the guy that was belaying me wasn't paying that much attention. He had a little bit of extra rope. So I did have the sensation of falling mm. and I loved it. It was exciting. I like, you <laughs> <laughs> of surprise, I wasn't expecting it. Oh. And so I came back down and I had no more strength to do another one because I gave it all on the first one. And I just went to the office and said, can I fill out the form for the monthly membership? I'm down. And I couldn't fill it out because my <laughs> my head was so tired. It was crazy. I couldn't write. I, I wow. was crying and it wasn't working. But yeah, I got addicted from the beginning and... It was crazy when I started discovering that I also started discovering the climbing life and uh, the code of values that people have and that there were all people that think like me, thought like me. So that was uh, like an eye opening. I'm like, whoa, there's this whole other world that I didn't know of. And it's amazing. I love it. That's such an incredible story. First of all, that you're, you already had this desire for it. And then your uncle happened to be a rock climber, which I think is interesting. Yeah. You mentioned values. What what are some of the, the values of climbers, I guess, or the climbing community? We appreciate nature and time, also free time. You know, there's like a, this a thing that everybody says, and I think it's like even a brand uses as a slogan, work less, climb more. And it's mm. because you find people from all different places. You know, there's uh, people that uh, have very important jobs and that make a lot of money. And for them, the most important thing is to have some free time so they can they can be outside climbing. When you are together climbing, there's no roles, you know, like what you are outside doesn't matter. Nobody cares. And even like t- take you points down, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> if you're that important, people will like you as much. So there's kind of like a, an equal playing field when you when you get out there. Your exactly. previous status doesn't doesn't count. Yes, yes. Yeah. And the comp- there's a competition, but it goes against yourself. It's not against the others. And, mm. and so ego is not well received. It's something that people don't like to see. So uh, when somebody's climbing, yeah. it's part of the culture to help whomever is climbing to push uh, themselves. That almost makes sense to me that it can't be too competitive because you're very interconnected when you're climbing. That's true. You yeah. need uh, your friend to be uh, taking care of you. They belay you while you go up. So that, that's, that already sets uh, boundaries. So there's, there's a lot of, um, it's very symbiotic. I, I heard you mention that trust is very important. How do you end up, I guess, gaining trust with somebody that you're climbing with? There's something that happens when you climb. Your belayer has to take care of different things. And for me, it's very important to be connected with the other person. And I, I, it'll be hard for me to explain. Like there is the part of the belaying where I, I know if they're paying attention and if they're making the effort and they know what to do. Mm. But also outside of safety, if they care about me doing good and it's not something that sometimes they can say with words. Sometimes mm-hmm. their personality is more quiet and I know they won't be doing like, venga, venga, go, you got this, come on, come on, you got this thing. Or like a, saying a lot of things. Maybe they're completely silent 
And sometimes I don't hear anything, but I know they're following. It's so, it's weird. Mm, interesting. It's hard to explain, but there's the energy. Or sometimes there's just this one word, you know, like I know that there's a routes that I've been at the hard part and I'm not making any noise, but they know I'm having a hard time. And sometimes it's like, if it's quite technical, you cannot tell from the bottom, but then I, I hear them like, I'm with you. Like I, I've got you before I'm here. And then sometimes that was exactly what I needed to hear. And I, I feel like if I let go now, I'm letting go for the team, not just for myself. Like I, I should wow. push myself a little bit harder. That's so, beautiful. Yeah. I see so many parallels in hu human relationships. There's almost, I think there's, there's vibrations that each of you are sending out to each other that pr probably can get picked up somewhat through the rope, but also the, the tiny little sounds and things like that. And your, the trust sounds like it's coming from attunement that the person is attending is very very present present in that moment present with you with all of your frequencies and you're present with them you're able to like pick up on on that which to me is so parallel to the attachment process to exactly what humans need for psychological safety especially growing up but throughout our entire lives it's that feeling of What you, what you are doing in this moment is very tuned into by another person and they are witnessing it for you and they're there for you and they're, they're able to hold that presence. I think that is just spectacular for symbolism of what, what you sense in those moments. And then for that feeling, like to me, I feel this, this connection to when it comes to relationships, when someone is, is so tuning into you and there for you, first of all, it doesn't always require words. It sometimes is just simply presence. Or sometimes it's that one word that is so tuned into what you are experiencing in that moment that it just, it doesn't need a lot, a lot of words. It's just one. And then that response that you had of, wow, they're so there for me. If I let go now, I'm, I'm letting down them. I'm letting down this whole dynamic, this whole special connected fabric that you've created with them. What I almost sense from what, what emerges through climbing is this, this symbiotic kind of collective intelligence that humans are all capable of when they, when they move together, when they do things together, they have the similar goal. Your goal is to get better, to climb, to be stronger, to be safe, you know, to help each other do that. And it's like you connect to something bigger than the two of you. It's like a third thing that gets created through that, where it's just this collective, I don't know, like a collective energy that is this feedback system, right? It's these signals and frequencies back and forth and back and forth. And the more tuned in they are, the better the system is. So 
I just love that. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, you described that so well. It, like, it matches the, my experience completely. It, it, it's beautiful. I love it. And, and so I could see why it's hard to describe in words um, because it's just, there's so, well, there's so much depth to it, but there's so, it's like an energetic thing. And I think that's the other thing with humans is that we, we, do, we do our best with words. We try to convey as much as we can with words, but there's so much power in presence and tuning into all the other frequencies that are going on. That might be a subtle thing like your, your breath might change or the way you're holding onto the rope kind of changes. Those aren't words, but that almost might give them more information than your words do. You know? Oh, completely. And you will also, when you're relaying, you want you want your partner to do their best. So you kind of like get into their head and you feel what they're feeling. And so you're there and their success feels as yours too. You know, like you did that with them together. And I, I like sometimes I, I realize like, okay, they're getting nervous and, and they're not breathing. But if I tell them breathe, that's going to freak them out and it's not going to do anything. So I start breathing myself very loud so they can hear me in the tone that they they have to wow. hear it. I just go loud so they can hear me from the top and then I can hear them breathing and I'm like, okay, it's working. Yeah. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I love that. That to me, that's like, first of all, there's this component of what you're tuning into is that when someone is in a state of distress they are not going to be using a lot of that expensive equipment of our brain that is very verbal. We're going to go back to our pre-verbal state, like when we were infants and there were no words and everything is taught to us simply through modeling, right? Our, our parents didn't teach us how to move. They didn't explain it through words. They didn't explain how to, you know, it's just through that mirroring. So you, you're, you're tuning in on that intuitive level to, when, when things are getting stressful and things like that, words might not be, sometimes they might, but they might not reach that person. And you're pointing to the importance of breath, it sounds like too. So is that something that, like what happens for you in moments where you are struggling and you're feeling anxious or stressed? What are, how do you use your mind and body to regulate yourself again and to kind of keep going? Exactly. I guess breath, it's a huge component for this. Okay, I have different stages for controlling my, my mind and some of them happen before I get into the route. But when I'm already in the point, the precise point where I'm engaged into a sequence and I know that it's going to be scary, whether because there's a risk or there's not, but it's just scary. I usually try to just go for it and co- focus completely on the task, but it's like meditation, you know, sometimes even if you try hard, thoughts sneak in. Mm-hmm. So if you feel the, the thought of fear sneaking in and you let it get uh, more and more room in your head, then it gets very challenging to get rid of it. So mm. for me, I need to stop it right away. But sometimes I, I need something so I can direct my attention somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it, I cannot do it, go back right away to the movement that I'm doing. And that's where breathing it's magic. So I, mm. I start to do the same thing and I just do very loud breathing so I can hear myself and I try to calm myself down through my breathing because sometimes it can be, I can be breathing fast because I was in a cardio effort or just because I was mm-hmm. scared. Um, and I just try to calm down and do, 
and then go back to it as many times as it takes until it's calm. And it usually works. Usually mm-hmm. works. To me, I'm hearing a regulation, a, a regulation strategy. So one thing you're doing is you're disengaging from the thing, the situation and the stimulus that's causing the stress by not going back to the move right away. So you, you divert yourself from that. And I think there's, there's important parallels for other people to hear about anything stressful happening in life is that sometimes it's not about stay, staying engaged with that exact stimulus, which could be the stressful text conversation or the whatever that is, like that, that thought that keeps like ruminating and looping. You need to divert to something else first regulate and then you can re-engage and that is exactly like the framework of what you call regulatory flexibility which is the ability to engage disengage and then you can re-engage from a new state and then with the breath what I'm hearing too is so you you're in like because you're you're already in the sympathetic system right this like sympathetic excitatory system because you're climbing, first of all. So your heart rate's already going to go up. So there's going to be mixed messages from your body sometimes too, because your heart's just beating fast. And sometimes that can you know, activate a bit of a stress response too. So what you're doing when you do that, that breathing is you are guiding your body basically to go back somewhat into parasympathetic. So you're controlling your breath to lower that kind of excitatory activity. So that's a very strong regulation strategy that I, you know, you're doing it for climbing, but we all, we've heard about these techniques also like take 10 breaths or, you know, that kind of thing, but we're seeing it in live action as you're talking about it. So I feel like that's something that could very easily translate to life when it's feeling like it's getting overwhelming and we're breathing up here and it's really fast, divert, disengage from that and go into just the breath. And you're making it so exaggerated. Something I do as well, I will purposely hold my fingers here or I even do it, I've even done it underwater, like in the shower, the bathtub, where I breathe so that I really, really hear the breathing. Even putting earplugs in and you can really hear your breath. It's like you have no choice but to hear it. And that's part of what I think draws your attention back to the present moment instead of looping into all the narratives and the stories and the future projections of how this could go wrong. You come back to just that. And there's a rhythm to it as well. When we focus on our breath, we we're getting our brain to focus on something rhythmic. And as it does that, that changes in a sense how the brain waves start to, well, how the circuits talk to each other, which changes the brain waves can get you into like a, a slightly more rhythmic kind of activation fascinating so <laughs> like a, divide it into parts and make it logical i love it so <laughs> <laughs> but you were i think maybe you were getting here as well so there's there's the in the moment stress but i would imagine that there's preparatory like things that you prepare mentally prepare before mm-hmm. you climb that also might help with making sure that you stick to it and you don't get overly stressed or is there is that part of it as well oh yeah completely yeah yeah. i have a a few actually like depending on the situation i have some reflections that i've done before i climb that help me motivate myself when i'm in the section where i can have fear to dare or not to go also when it's something that i know specifically where i'm getting myself to there's a different 
preparatory ritual that I do. I like to visualize myself into that section. Mm-hmm. So I guess for the first option, what I like to do is I like to think of all the things that had to happen for me to reach that point. Because the, when you're climbing, you're not afraid all the time. There's parts of the route has different difficulties. So uh, most of the route, you're in a place of comfort, whether because there are movements that you can perform quite well or because you're climbing the hard part right where the protection is and there's, uh, you feel safe. But there's some other parts where maybe you're very far from the protection and the move is hard and that's when it can get scary. Or sometimes when you're trail climbing and you don't know if the protection that you place will hold or not, depending on the rock quality and other factors. And so in those situations, it's when you're outside of your comfort zone and it's when you will reach that state of fear. And ultimately, I feel like at least myself, that's what I climb for, to reach those parts because mm. I want to be exposed to an area where I can grow because on the others, it's just normal. I'm just doing what I know all the time and it's cool. You know, I can show myself that I'm capable, but there's no room for growth. And on the others is where I'm going to be challenged is when if I get to call myself and to make wise decisions, then I'm going to get to the next step and I'm going to be safe. And all those things translate into our lives. And I've, I've got the exact same feeling when I'm, you know, in uh, hard situations in life, either in a conversation with someone or even uh, stuck in the highway because the car broke down and, uh, and I have no insurance and I have no nobody that I know. And, and I'm like, oh, panic. And right away, like, no, I need to stay calm and deal with this because if I'm calm, then I have much better chances of succeeding. And so with climbing, I think of, I think of that before. I think, okay, to reach those, mo- those parts of the route, there are just very few during the week even, because I know that you're not climbing at your limit all the time. So you're waiting, you do the warm up routes and then you climb the rest of the route. And then maybe you're not even tired and you were taking breaks. So when you reach that point, it's not that challenging. So it's sometimes that you get that option where you're at your limit and you you don't know if it's going to work or not. And you want to know, you know, and, and then I, I said to myself, okay, well, what did I have to do? Well, I even, I quit my job. I moved to France, you know, I, sometimes I'm like, I was uh, sleeping in my car, doing all these things. I have a, an amazing climbing partner that is here supporting me and I, oh, everything happened for this instant that it's so brief. It's mm. like uh, two minutes maybe, and maybe I will have two others today. So that's six minutes today and I will climb mm. for the day's week. So I don't know, it's like 25 minutes a week. It's not much, it's very brief. If I'm lucky, you know, it's most likely it's less than that. But if I let go of this moment, if I don't do my best, if I don't try, it's such a shame, it's a pity. I will mm. hate myself and I know that tomorrow I'm gonna be like, oh no, I didn't try. So this Mm. is an opportunity and I can decide if I take it or not. And I'm sure that if I just do my best, then the result will be positive. It doesn't matter if I make the move or not, if I fall or not, because what I wanted to do is to learn and to expose myself to this fear, be outside of my comfort zone and then just try to do my best, you know, to stay calm and to do my best. I, I cannot think of all those things as I'm climbing. So I think of it before and I know all those things already. So when I'm there, I'm like, okay, this is the time. And I just have to say, this is, this is, this is it right now. There's not another, you did all this for now. And that gives me this extra strength 
and I get to find, I don't know, I get energy out of nowhere. Sometimes it, they like already being where I am, where I was, it looked impossible and doing one more move. It was impossible. <laughs> and oh. sometimes it works. I don't know how. And sometimes it works even two or three times. And that's when you get into this flow state that it's just magical. It's like I feel like everything goes slow motion and I'm just mm. so precise. I can feel every inch of everything, how my hand attaches to the little pebble, to the little rock and the rubber of my shoes just get in, my hips get down and like every muscle, which one I have to engage is my core, if it's my arm and just think I know exactly if it's something that I'm working, what the next hold is and how I have to move and hold it. And I know that I'm going to do my best and everything, you know, like it's just, I mean, so much thing. And if I fall, if I fall, it's a reward. It's like an attraction mm -hmm. part. I wasn't expecting it. I'm not afraid because it came out of surprise. So I even wanted to be bigger before. And when I fall, I it just, I've changed, you know, instead of getting angry because I fell, I'm just so happy because I tried and I like to laugh and I just start laughing, you know, like, oh, that was <laughs> Incredible. I loved it, you know. <laughs> I love that. So when yeah. when you when you fall, what you're you're almost experiencing is if if you hadn't tried, you wouldn't fall. So there's this joy of falling that comes from you you pushed a limit. Like you because if you knew exactly how to do it, you wouldn't have fallen. It's proof that you did something you didn't know how to do exactly. And exactly. that you, you tried it. Yeah. And it, to me, there, I mean, there's, there's so many parallels again with life, but that feeling of doing that thing you don't know how to do and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. There's something so precious about it. And I love that you think about everything that you've done up until that point was to prepare you for that moment. The moment that you're right there at that trajectory, at that crossroads of choosing to do something completely new and you don't know if you're going to be able to do it, or I guess it would be going back down or sticking to a familiar route, right? Those are the, that's like the crossroads. In that very moment, you're at your pinnacle of your evolution. You're at the highest point that you will ever be in your life in terms of how much data, how many experiences you've already had is that moment. And so from that moment, that is the platform for this crossroads. Your highest point of evolution, you can either stay with where it's at by continuing to do the same thing or going back down and giving up, or from this highest point in your evolution of all everything that you've learned, everything you've sacrificed, all of the choices and the decisions you made, that crossroads of going into that doing the thing that you don't know how to do where you risk falling, that pushes you to another level of evolution. It's like to me that 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 is describes what happens in the brain. So the the saying is, you know, no challenge, no change. That struggle and challenge are exactly what 
the brain needs in order for the growth to explode and for there to be these new circuits. Because otherwise it just repeats what it has. It's just, it's got the resources, got all that stuff, and then it just keeps using it. But as soon as you do the thing you don't know how to do, the brain body has to figure out, oh, we, we have to reassemble here. We have to pull from here and do this and reorganize in order to build this new structure to do this thing that's in front of us right now. So structure, so challenge, like what you're doing describes exactly what almost happens in the brain, right? Of <laughs> pushing <laughs> ourselves to, to learn that new thing. That's where the new circuits happen. Now we have a more evolved brain because it just learned how to solve a new problem. Isn't that yeah. fantastic? It, it is. You know, you just learned, and it's, this is a reflection that you, you just learned how to solve a new problem. You survived it. You, you're, you survived it, but you, you used some sort of new mechanism to solve this problem you've never solved before. And so that's creating right there, that's creating circuits for problem solving in general. Mm. It's creating circuits yeah. for that instead of circuits for repetition, instead of circuits for giving up, it's circuits for problem solving. How do yeah. I face? How do I face the unknown? How do I face a problem? I, I love how you just described all that. I was picturing <laughs> circuits like <laughs> building as, as you're talking. Well, you know. I'm glad that you remember everything that you were thinking of because it's so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you you have these moments where you go and you do kind of a new move. Uh, you challenge yourself. So then you get to the other side, I guess, or you get to the new point. Do you kind of relish in it right in that moment, or do you keep going? Like, what what's the emotional experience after you've challenged yourself like that? Well, it's very rewarding. I mean, it depends on the specific route because it, sometimes after that you can get a rest, but sometimes sometimes you don't get a rest. Sometimes you get a part that is endurance and then you have to keep going. And I also, like there's something that happens quite often. Like if it's a route, let's say, because you have sometimes routes that you work, then you project, especially in sports climbing. So it's a route that you're not capable of doing the first try but then you keep repeating and, and rehearsing and getting stronger until you're able to do completely. And the objective is to do it from the bottom to the top without falling. And so sometimes there's the, this specific part of the route where is you, you're struggling with and you, you, you fall there. And so sometimes you can be projecting for a very long time. There's people that do it even for years. Mm. Um, and so when you pass the point where you usually fall, sometimes it's easy and you're very scared. You're thinking like, I shouldn't mess it up. And it happens to me often. Like it's a section that I cruise usually and that I have no trouble, but since the stakes are so higher, so much higher, because if I fall there, it'll be like such a pity since I already did the hard part. Right. uh, You know, and like often like at that section, like the, your partner and the people around get it. You know, they know what you're going through. So mm. they, they're very quiet and they're just like, you're doing good. Just keep it together. Just keep breathing. I'm here. You know, like just very calm. You know how to do this. And it happens that people fall in the easy sections just because mm. you're, you know, like you're, you're not in the present moment. And but for me, the, what I like the most is when I'm completely in the present and like sort of possessed. It happened to me last time I climbed. 
I fell at the top of the route. And when I fell, I asked, like, was that the first time that I fell? I don't remember. I was <laughs> so focused that I just didn't know because I was so much there. And sometimes, like, I even convinced myself that I have fallen already. So I take out that extra mm. pressure and I stay, I stay focused. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I don't know if I answered the question. I get lost. Well, I think, I mean, I was asking, like, I mean, you did. Um, It sounds like it's, I was asking about, like, the emotional experience after you've done a challenge like that. It sounds like it's not, there's not a, it might feel, you know, like a victory, but it might not because you might immediately have to move into the next thing you have to do as well. Yes. It sounds like, yeah. Yes. I guess that feeling, it goes when you clip the anchors, Uh, finish the route. and, And that's for sure that you finish. And then there's definitely a huge satisfaction, you know, like mm. it's reward and it feels amazing. And but mm-hmm. it's very ephemeral. It, it doesn't last mm-hmm. long time. Mm-hmm. Right mm-hmm. away, you look, you're thinking of the next project. But it's it, it's nice, you know. It's, it it does feel great. Yeah. But I, I guess for me, I I've enjoyed more the when I caught myself feeling calm during the hard situation. Oh, I, I have interesting. a memory of that. Yeah. I remember oh. there was a route that I was trying a long time ago when I was first started starting track climbing and uh, I didn't have very good crack technique. And so the, and also I didn't have the right piece for that section. So basically I, I was in a situation where going back was impossible or at least it was risky. And so my only way down was up. So I analyzed and I'm like, okay, well, there's no way around. Like, I'm not going to call a helicopter to take me 20 meters off the ground. Like, it's mm. no, then my partner cannot do anything and I cannot, I need to do this move. And so if I do it, I should focus on doing the move right. I cannot allow myself to be scared. And I was doing a much harder sequence because I just didn't have the crack climbing technique at the time. And when I finally did it, I reached the point where I should be safe. Because I, 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 I thought that I had the right thing to place and I didn't. So I was mm. stuck at a harder challenge again. Wow. Like, so I, like the stakes were much higher. And then I, I, there was no return point. It was a little bit easier. So I knew I could do it, but I started to be clumsy. And I remember I was like looking fast into my things and, and I caught myself doing that. And I'm like, no, like uh, I started breathing and started calming down. And I actually remember myself from the distance. It's weird. I don't remember myself mm. from my eyes, but like from seeing outside wow. and just feeling so calm and relaxed after and being like so safe because it was, it, I think fear comes, like I said, reflex so to keep us alive. It's a good thing. It, like otherwise I will be running into the fire. Uh, but so it's, so it'll be irresponsible not to feel fear sometimes. <laughs> but at that time it felt like, the responsible thing was to not feel fear and I was allowed to not feel fear and I was doing the right thing. So it was, it was so peaceful. And I remember not feeling any fear and looking like the distance to the last piece, it was big and the piece that was not working. (laughs) Wow. feeling so safe and calm and just calming down trying to recover my arms you know switching one arm the other and I remember saying to myself look at you like right now in this situation oh years before you will be crying and look at you you managed you're doing good now and I calmed myself got on top of like the holes that I had in my hands 
And then the next move was the same thing. <laughs> I was still in that situation, but yeah. I, I started analyzing and thinking like, okay, these holes, I know I can fall. It's just I'm scared because the next foothold, it's polished and small. But I know that even if that doesn't work, I will be able to catch myself into this. I should just focus on doing the move. And the, the next move, and then the anchors were there. And that's when I got that rewarding part. It was very mm. nice. But I think that I like even more the part where I was calm during the moment. That was my favorite. Yeah. Wow. I, you know, I just, I'm about to send a newsletter about being the eye in the middle of the storm. And to me, I think that reflects what so many of us yearn for is that ability to really be centered in our own sense of peace and inner like stability, inner security, no matter what is happening around us. And if you could do that in that kind of extreme situation, how many situations in life could that assist you with? Because that means you actually got the taste of it. You got the taste of that's what it's like in the middle of that much uncertainty, fear, I found a way to be completely surrendered to the intelligence of my being, to the intelligence of all everything that was occurring, because there's all these little calculations and little movements, but you, it's like you trusted the intelligence of just something that's bigger than you in the sense of bigger than the small little mind that has the narratives. You know, there's, there's this aspect of our mind that is taking in so much data and all that's there, it's all accessible to us. It's just that our expectations, our predictions, our narratives make us only aware of very specific pieces of data, but it's not because that data is not there. It's entered the system. And so when you kind of let go, it's like you accessed that bigger realm of intelligence and information that when you let go in a sense of your mind, which is that the fear-based part has a lot to do with our narrative. And that's our like trying to protect our flesh aspect of us, plus all the emotional stories and all that. When you let go of that, it's like your, all of that intelligence got to be accessible to you again, but in a way that's like out of your mind. Wow. Right. You know, and I would say, so a couple other things that come up for me, you use the word necessity. In that moment, it really didn't feel like a choice. You said, I think the only way out was up. And I think that that idea of necessity is so powerful. Like when we really believe there is no option but to go up, there is no option but to keep going and move forward. That sense of necessity I think focuses our every intelligent cell of our body into one cohesive, totally in sync, attuned organism of this is the only option, go. <laughs> Versus <laughs> when we're kind of like, oh, maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do this. And I think it's that, that, that kind of gets all of our, you know, all of this power that's here in the mechanisms of all of ourselves to kind of be slightly disoriented and going in different goals. But it was like, no, this is it. Let's go. One yes. goal now. Oh, <laughs> I yeah, love yeah. that. <laughs> That's, you know, and 
And I almost feel like there's something that we can learn from that for our own lives about when we really access a sense of necessity of what we're doing, I think that's when we, that focus starts to really come in, that flow, that intelligence. And one example for me, well, two that kind of come up is writing my book. When I think about what I'm trying to convey in it, and I access the sense of this is necessary, this is absolutely needed. I have no other option but to write this. (laughs) When I'm in that headspace, I go into flow. Yes. Right. And when I'm kind of like, oh, do people really need that? Or, you know, when it, like <laughs> then it's all it's all over the place. But when it's like, no, this is needed. There is no there's no other. I'm not backing out now. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> so I love that. And then the other thing that comes up for me, too, is um, like it sounded a little bit like an out of body experience. And I remember I had that with um, I had been training my mind to deal with a very challenging relationship from that had a long, long, long history to it. And I think I've talked about it in my podcast, but I basically used visualization and every technique possible. And I was training myself to be able to deal with this interaction. And I remember that it was always like, it was still struggle, still struggle, wasn't really getting it. And then one day it was like something clicked and it was basically like, this is it. I need to get this or this is going to continue to just mess up my life. And, I, and I'm, I'm ne- it's going to sh- basically confirm that I can't figure out how to regula- regulate myself in the face of a challenging relationship. And I knew in that point, it was like choice point. I'm like, absolutely not. I'm not going to be this kind of victim that always gets dysregulated by challenging relationships. This is it. This is the moment. Like that's what it kind of felt like. And it was almost like an out-of-body experience because in that moment, it was like I was witnessing myself talking. I was witnessing myself be totally neutral and calm, even though, yeah, that person was still the storm that they were. And it was... Yeah, it was a, that was like the moment where I'm like, oh, it's possible. <laughs> it's possible to be the eye in the middle of the storm. Yeah. Have, you know, and so you, you got that taste yeah. rock climbing and it's, it, I, I feel like it's, it's possible in all areas of our life Completely. to access that. And it, I think that's one of the most rewarding feelings possible. And, and then it actually makes me think of the word unconditional power. Conditional power is you feel powerful when the conditions are right and you know what you're doing and you have this and this and all the conditions are checked. But unconditional power is when you feel powerful and the conditions can be absolutely any, any possible <laughs> way and you will feel powerful. And so that wow. I think is what we want. I think we all want that feeling because unconditional power means you can face anything. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I love it. yeah. So, um, 
well, we've been chatting for a while, but I, I want to hear about the project that you're working on, Mountains Beyond Borders. So yes. if you could just share a little bit about what, what it's all about. So at Mountains Beyond Borders, our work is to support different organizations and projects that use climbing as a way to promote social integration or to help people that are in um, hard situations to get out of them. So basically to do something good with through climbing. And when I started uh, working with uh, Tiffany Hensley, which is the director and the founder of uh, Mountains Beyond Borders, she told me that she wanted to like, uh, expand and help other organizations and network. And, and at the time I was living in France, and so I loved the idea. And so we started reaching out to different organizations in France. And then COVID happened. What that carried on is that our main partner for Mountains Beyond Borders, it's this NGO in northern Mexico called Escalando Fronteras that it takes uh, kids from uh, this uh, underprivileged neighborhood uh, rock climbing as a way to get out of the uh, struggles that they live in daily life. You know, when they first got into the this neighborhood, which is called uh, Lomas Modelo, uh, they found kids from elementary school that were doing rocks uh, from a very young age inside the mm -hmm. school. And that's not something that happened to any kid or I don't think they actually like decided to like Google how to do drugs, you know, and start yeah. doing it. It was out, like surrounding them. And so uh, when they started taking them rock climbing in the first instance, they were taking them out of their neighborhood, which is a new experience for them because most of them, they haven't even been outside of that little small area. And so when COVID happened and the confinement was going on, it was harder for them to stay out of uh, all these risks that were present in the, their day, daily life. And talking with Alejandro, the director of MBB, we came up with a strategy to make the kids still share their passion of rock climbing with other kids. And so we can do that uh, through videos and we, we do it with kids in France, then that can still be very stimulating. And then they can see that there's uh, kids in the other side of the world that share their passion and that uh, share values and live the same thing. Even they come from a very, if they come from a very different context and the kids in France were very curious and the kids in Mexico too. And it was quite a, a very like inspiring synergy. And then, we started dreaming and thought, wouldn't it be amazing if we can bring some of the kids and so they can meet and, and hang out and like just see friends. Mm. And we started working on the project and, and we we're like, OK, let's just go for it. Let's just try and then we'll see along the way, you know, like how we managed to make it happen. And so right now the goal is to bring uh, three kids. They will arrive the 10th of August uh, into France and they will leave the 1st of September. I mean, we still haven't raised the money. So if people <laughs> is listening and they want to help us, please, that will make the difference go to our crowdfunding campaign. Yes, uh, I'll, and, I'll send the link. I'll add the link to the episode. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And and the kids will get a space where they get to tell their story, you know, and to have different conversations and they will be exposed to different stimulus and challenges and people and they will be speaking French. They have been learning French. Alejandro oh, speaks French. <laughs> amazing. It's so nice. 
he sends me sometimes like some little audio clips of them like in their lessons and it's just so cute oh i love it <laughs> the families of the kids are really excited too like you can see the impact like it's already exponential the family of jasmine was sharing her post and everybody was saying we should support her this is the future and we're so proud of her it's a, i feel like already you know like even even the code of values, like uh, if with the friends, it's changing, you know, like before, I don't know, it was like being the boss of the, of the neighborhood. And now like the cool thing is to speak French and to go to friends. Oh. Like, yeah. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, it yeah. may, as you say that part of what I see shifting for them is where those social rewards are coming from. So if they're used to it coming from what you're saying, like a certain kind of hierarchy or certain types of activities they're now getting because social rewards are the most influential especially for young kids they are for all of us but like to get social rewards for doing something like speaking french and seeing that it connects them with very cool people and then even rock climbing and seeing that as they continue to do that they're getting these other incredible social bonding kind of rewards with other people so that's, I feel like right there is already a really big shift that there's another way to get that sense of belonging and sense of acceptance that doesn't have to come from doing the thing that all the other kids are doing. Exactly. I love that. And that exactly. you may even get a bigger reward because you're going to expand like your territory in a sense. You're going to expand into territory that the other people will never necessarily know because they keep doing the same activities. But when you branch out and you do something unknown and unfamiliar and not the norm, you get to now like expand into something completely new with new connections, new opportunities. So that's just beautiful. I love that. And then we're even, you know, as the cherry on the cake, we have two professional rock climbers that are amazing you know like just amazing rock climbers they're amazing humans i love them i respect them very much and they're two girls and they both speak spanish and and daila also speaks french and so it's like a dream for the kids you know like a, like this is like i don't know amazing. like i don't know what to compare it to because it's just so good and yeah. they were the ones that reached out to me to be part of this project which is even wow. more unique you know it's it's they're friends of mine so that plays a role but even then like they're like i want to be part of this project and then when the kids come they will be with them and we're gonna go to um a beautiful area of the alps called el Fuad, where we will do a four-day trip with them and they will take them uh, hiking and rock climbing and bouldering. And, and we'll have different experiences where they can get to talk about their uh, lives. And the life path of Fernanda is the same as the kids. She lived the same thing. She comes mm. from a similar background and she got herself out of there by herself through climbing. And so mm. she speaks their language in so many ways. I feel like the impact is just as much for the kids as for them as well. I think that for everybody that gets into this project, you know, like I, I, I think that the beautiful thing of it is that it's just one thing that started and it just benefits everybody that is in, you know, like I'm just yeah. like the first one to be the most benefited out of it. I, it gives me purpose. It makes me feel happy. I, I love seeing people uh, joining and being, you know, getting something out of it. And it just keeps growing. It's this thing that is a, a thing of itself. It, belongs mm. to nobody it's just like this entity mm. that 
It yeah. was created magically. <laughs> wow. And it, it also, that ties into the concept of self-transcendent purpose that you probably heard me talk about, which is that for, for you, like you're hearing how your journey, how much rock climbing has helped you and then the other partners that are coming in, that they're finding a way to make sense of it. Like now, now that whole journey that brought you to this point, you get to pass on as wisdom to help another person. And so it just, yeah, keeps like reverberating out these ripples. And that, to me, that's like such a big part of the engine that gives us purpose and drive and keeps us to stick with things is we know, just like you were talking about in the beginning of not letting that person down, that it's this feeling of, oh, they're tuning into my experience. They're attending to my experience. They care about my experience. They care about my growth. Like that's what these kids are feeling from you, you know? And so I think that that just creates this beautiful collective energy of all of you to, to, you know, tap into that, to that self, that purpose, that sense of purpose that we are here together. We're joining on this journey together. We don't want to let each other down. We want to see each other climb and succeed, which is what you're doing in climbing, but you're doing it through this program as well. So it's beautiful. I will put details about the project on the website so people can join the, the crowdfunding thing that you have. Is there anything else you want to share? Like anything I didn't ask you about that you want to, you want to share? Well, uh, no, just, I think I said it already, but I really like uh, all your work. It, it has definitely given me tools to change my life and I'm not exaggerating a little bit. And I know it's the same for people that I recommended. And I think it's important to hear this because sometimes when we're working in these doing better things, I don't know how to describe it. We never see it pay. We never know if it's actually doing something. And I can tell you for myself, it has already done so much, Mm. so much. So thank you so much for your work. It has been life-changing for me and for so many other people. I appreciate that so much. And yeah, that makes me a bit emotional. But yeah, it it does sometimes, you know, I, I, I don't do it to get applause, but you, I kind of put stuff out there and then I just hope. <laughs> but I don't always know. You're right. I don't always know until people tell me. And then it just, that gives me so much more energy to keep going. So it's a, it's another example of this witnessing of each other and attuning to what each other are putting out there that I'm putting stuff out there and someone is letting me know that it's received and and that they're paying it forward themselves so that is just beautiful I love that I think that's what is the it's the mechanism for humans as a I think we are one giant super organism I think we we're like neurons that are talking to each other and we just have cut ourselves into tiny little silos that are talking to each other a lot and not amongst each other. But the more of us that spread these networks and talk across these networks and share that we are, that I'm sending stuff out, you're receiving it, you're sending it out to other people and all that. I feel like that tunes into what humans are, are meant to do. I think we're meant to do that as, as a species altogether. So I love that 
we're, we're part of this. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you for the incredible metaphors that you brought in and just how you are challenging yourself and how, like you, I think, you know, the, the theme for this season is how we use our bodies, our limbs, our hands, our voices. How do we use them in ways to make us really evolve into our highest, the highest version of us. And I feel like you with the climbing and then also expanding it to reach younger people and connect these worlds, I think is such a good example of that. So it's really an honor. It's an honor to know you. And I'm also so excited to visit you and stay in New York. <laughs> I'm also really excited for that. I'm looking forward. It's marking uh, the calendar. So we can, uh, uh, we can speak in French or Spanish. Or <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, yes. Thank you. And I will, I'll put all the links up to, to everything about your project. And that way people can get in touch with you too if they want to know more. So I appreciate so, it. Thank yeah, you. so great to have you on. So thank you. Likewise, it's an honor. So thank you for listening to my interview with Alma. I will have a link to her program on my website page that's associated with this episode and some more information about her and how you can support her program as well. The upcoming podcast will likely be late July or August, and it will be with two professors who are researchers in the field of embodied cognition. And we talk about their book called Movement Matters, which is a fascinating book about how we truly learn and how we can integrate our understanding of sensory motor systems and how much movement is important for learning and teaching as well. So that will be in an upcoming podcast. And as always, you can email me at hello at stephaniefay.com and you can also get my free mini book about self-regulation and co-regulation, as well as what I call super-regulation, which is where we take our skills in self-regulating and our ability to regulate with others and then model it and extend it to larger communities and a sense of purpose for ourselves and for the collective. So that's the concept of super-regulators, and that's in my little mini-book, which you can get when you subscribe to stephaniefay.com. And a really great way to support my work, if you believe in what I'm doing, is to subscribe to the podcast as well as my website and to leave a five-star review and any kinds of comments that you have for me. So thank you very much for listening and I will catch you in the next episode.